This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. The Tower of London. As the prisoner awaited the hour of their death, they prayed. Prayed for their soul. Prayed for their family. Their death was inevitable, yet the fate of those closest to them rested in their final speech. Those closest to the king would be listening. As the sun rose on that fateful day, they were slowly paraded toward the scaffold, which they had heard being erected the day before. Crowds had gathered to watch the execution of such a noble member of society. One step after another, the condemned walked toward their death. The scaffold steps before them were newly erected, yet they could imagine countless of others who had walked the same path before them. Others who did not deserve death, but freely accepted it. A few words to be spoken about their gracious sovereign and an admission of their faults led to the condemned paying the man with a purse of coin who would take their head. As they looked over the jeering crowd one last time, familiar faces looked back. Both friends and foes had attended the event. They slowly knelt behind the block. Their life flashed before their eyes. And when they built up the courage and faith, they bent over and rested their neck before a swift blow of the axe ended their life. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the story of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Today, my guest is Tara Ball. Tara is employed at the Tower of London. The Tower holds many stories of execution and torture, yet this iconic landmark holds many more stories that deserve to be told. As a warden of the White Tower, Tara knows all about the history of this magnificent structure. I was truly looking forward to chatting with her about this fascinating place until we had a technical difficulty that would not allow our conversation to be recorded. Thankfully, Tara was kind enough to record her answers for me. In the future, I will invite her back so that we can have a real chat. Nevertheless, I know you'll enjoy the show and all the wonderful history it holds. But before we get started, I need to take a minute to thank those folks who became new patrons since my last episode, Libby C. and Dina P. Thank you very much. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudors Dynasty, and click Become a Patron. For as little as $3 per month, you can show your support. And with that, let's get on with the show. Hello, I'm Tara Ball, and I'm thrilled to be part of this podcast. It is a shame that due to technical difficulties, I wasn't able to chat live to Rebecca, but I want to thank her for giving me the opportunity and to thank Historic Royal Palaces for also their support and agreement to this. I'm going to have a little talk about my job at the Tower of London and answer a series of questions on my role and what life is like at the Tower both today and in the past. So I'll start with answering some questions about my job and day-to-day duties. What do you do at the Tower of London? 
I am a warden at the White Tower, or at Her Majesty's Palace and Fortress, the Tower of London. In a nutshell, my role is similar to that of a museum assistant. I patrol the galleries primarily within the White Tower and occasionally in the Crown Jewels exhibition. I'm part of a large team of other wardens that work in shift patterns. Our uniform is very smart and we're all very proud of wearing it. We all wear shirt and ties with skirts and trousers and wear a coat with a red collar. We also wear badges that defines where we are mainly based, either at the White Tower or the Crown Jewels. It does get pretty cold in the winter, so we wear long thick cloaks to keep us warm when necessary. In addition, we are issued with a top hat, but only wear on duty in the Crown Jewels. Our uniforms are mostly black with gold and red details, and we wear white gloves at the occasional ceremony. Like the Yeoman Warders, we wear the royal insignia, but less noticeably on our buttons rather than on our fronts. I've been working at the Tower for nearly 15 years, but 11 years as a warden. The role and what it requires has changed in the course of that time, but today customer service experience is favoured, um, but a keen interest in history and people are certainly a must. Knowledge is a skill needed for the role, as you will get asked lots of questions from where are the toilets to what type of stones are used in the White Tower. There is a serious side to the role that involves dealing with sensitive issues like lost people and unattended items. We have to meet challenges of potential language barriers as we deal with tourists where English is not their first language. Sometimes, as a first aider, I can face this particular challenge if someone has fallen ill during their visit. Our aim, though, is always for visitors to walk away and return home with memories of a positive visit, and I hope I have made a difference on their history knowledge too. What does your average day look like? There is never an average day at the Tower, really. You can never predict what questions you may get asked, and you have to be prepared for any change of plans that could impact the day right there and then. It could be as simple as filling in for someone or a last-minute tour. Our general routine is housekeeping and protecting the display cases and objects. We work closely alongside the Royal Armouries in the White Tower, which, the, which is the Armoury Museum. We will clean the displays and the surrounding areas before, during and after the day. We have an opening and lockdown procedures, but we do not want any unaccounted prisoners at the end of the day. After opening hours, the tower regularly hosts corporate and commercial functions, and we participate as we would during the day to guide the guests, be ready for questions, of course, and for fire safety requirements. The dinners and receptions are often formal, with themed displays and talented live musicians. I remember wonderful fantasy themes such as realised real ice sculptures of London landmarks, and even a Harry Potter theme of characters and puppets bringing a magical perk to the job. Mine is truly unique and special role, and it is easy to take pride in such a career. What is the most amazing thing you've learned in your time here? I suppose people would expect me to say that this answer is history-related, but if I'm honest, the answer is the sense of community and how the tower is ancient but it is still alive in a more positive phase of its history. Stories are still being written. The people who live and work there are from all walks of life and backgrounds. But the one thing we all have in common is that we are simply proud to be there and be part of it. We are quite protective of it. We respect the Tower immensely for what it stands for in history and in its future. We all love sharing the stories and our experience of our time here. We feel it is so important that we bring the Tower into a changing modern world of technology and trying to preserve age-old traditions such as the Ceremony of the Keys. We learn how to balance the past and the present, and that has to be the most amazing thing I've learned here. And you never stop learning. You can learn as little or as much as you want.
There are some things you need to know, of course, but I love getting as deep as I can and trying to find out new things or pulling out facts and information that has been lost. You simply choose how far you want to take it, and there are archives and experts on the site that you can arrange to speak to and see. It can really take a lot of energy, but it is certainly worth the journey. Now we come to what you've been waiting for, the history questions. I love getting asked about the tower's history and of the people, or should I say prisoners, that have been inside its walls. Everyone has their favourite, and of course mine is Queen Anne Boleyn. We go back a long way, but I first learned about the Tudors and the Six Wives of Henry VIII at eight years old. The fascination has never left me, and the journey of learning has been an inspiration and defined my adult life and career. I'm very proud to have been married at the Tower of London, in the very chapel where Anne and other tragic historical figures are at rest, the Chapel Royal of St Peter ad Vincula. Unlike famous, some famous Tudor marriages, I'm still very happily married. I hope, with about 30 years of consistently studying royal history as a hobby, I should know a thing or two to run this course of questions. Most of my answers are straight off the top of my head, but I have tried to be as accurate as possible. Are you ready? Let's begin. What was the original purpose of the Tower of London? The Tower of London began as a palace and fortress, and still remains so to this day. It is best remembered as a gloomy prison, but it was never built or officially created for that purpose. It was used as a prison for what was considered the most dangerous criminals, those whose crimes were against the crown or threatened its security. In its early days, the tower's main purpose was to function for defence as the fortress and provide comfortable royal lodgings. It started around the year 1078 and William the Conqueror, King of England, ordered its construction. This was to be the White Tower only and once standing proud and dominant by the year 1100, it used the old Roman wall on its east side as a defence wall and was surrounded by a moat. Unique features of its time were found inside, and still is, contributing to the defence of the castle. This included indoor toilets or garderobes where the passages led to the outer wall but narrowed inside, being impossible to crawl through and the spiral staircase, the Grand Staircase, built anti-clockwise when passing down to give defenders room to swing their right-handed swords, whilst disadvantaged right-handed enemies by not giving them the space as the central support column prevented it. I suppose it takes one to know one in William the Conqueror's case. William himself never lived to see it complete. He died in 1087. It was his son William II or Rufus that was the first king to make use of it, including the beautiful chapel of St John the Evangelist within the White Tower. Over the course of changing monarchs after the Conqueror, the tower was indeed used and recognised as a powerhouse, and some monarchs made additions and changes, such as building the wardrobe tower for storage of the king's jewels and the bell tower which housed a belfry and is still used today. The tower was significantly improved and expanded to the recognisable shape today by King Henry III and his son, King Edward I, in the 13th and 14th centuries. It became an incredible up-to-date fortress of defence, as well as being a luxurious functioning palace. Many foreign monarchs sent animals as gifts to the English monarch. What are some of the animals that were housed in the royal menagerie? The menagerie probably began under King John, he received three crate loads of wild beasts upon the loss of Normandy in 1204, and there are account records of payments to the then constable of the tower, John Fitzhugh, to pay the wages of the lion keepers. 
King John's son, King Henry III, was presented with an elephant in 1255 by the King of France. It attracted public attention so much that an illustration still exists of it alongside its keeper to show its huge size. It became a huge curiosity as many had never even seen such a beast. It died two years later, and it is in one sense exceptional that it survived so long, as its proper care was unknown. It was given wine to drink. Another animal presented to Henry III in 1252 was a polar bear by the King of Norway. It fished in the River Thames, tethered to the foreshore and accompanied by its nervous keeper. The river was known to have salmon in it at that time, so the bear must have felt the benefits. The remains of two African Barbary lions were discovered in the moat in 1937, and tests proved they lived between 1280 and 1480, so big cats must have been lodged at the Royal Menagerie at an early stage. Indeed, there are the exposed remains of the lion tower near today's entrance to the site. The 18th century was when the menagerie was at its height. There was a monkey room, big cats, exotic birds and snakes. There are a few surviving early guidebooks of the menagerie from this time. The animals also inspired poets and artists such as William Blake and Sir Edward Landseer. The latter used the lions to produce the sculptures at Nelson's Column on Trafalgar Square, still to be seen today. By the 19th century, the menagerie was in decline and broken up altogether by order of King William IV in 1835. This was down to interest in animal welfare and a passing of an act to protect animals and their keeping. It demonstrates a change in attitudes. The Duke of Wellington, as constable at this time, also wanted to bring back a military field to the tower rather than as a tourist attraction. Some of the animals had been moved to the zoological gardens at Hyde Park, which were the beginnings of London Zoo. On the topic of animals, the next question is, what is the significance of the ravens at the Tower of London? Today the ravens are a huge part of the Tower's community. They are of huge interest to the staff, residents and visitors, and are visible every day. Their history and their origins are subject to debate and a bit of mystery, but there is a general belief that they were once wild when the Tower was first built. Given the tower's close location to the River Thames and its moat, the rubbish of the city would have attracted birds like ravens as they are scavenger birds and belonging to the same bird family as crows and magpies which are also known for this trait. There is a legend that tells us that if the ravens leave the tower then the kingdom and monarchy will fall and it be a great disaster for the kingdom. The story goes that the first royal astronomer, John Flamstead, was based in one of the White Tower's turrets in the 17th century and complained to King Charles II about his equipment being ruined by the ravens. The king was keen to rid the Tower of Ravens until he learned of that legend and moved Flamstead instead to Greenwich, where the Royal Observatory is today. The only thing we know for sure about this story is that the White Tower was used as an observatory and John Flamstead was the royal astronomer but whether he moved to Greenwich because of the ravens is probably just a romantic Victorian story to the tower's first public visitors. What is the job of the raven master? Chris Scaife is the current raven master, and his job is to basically care for the ravens, and is in charge of them. He is primarily a yeoman warder, and is supported by Team Raven, which is made up of other yeoman warders. He is in charge of making sure the ravens are looked after on a daily basis, and this could mean checking up on their health and keeping the routine of getting the birds up and put to bed and making sure that they are fed correctly. I feel everyone at the tower truly cares for all the ravens, and we know all their characters and tricks. I know that he also loves studying ravens, from myth to anatomy, so that he can give them his best possible care and give the best life at the tower that suits their natural behaviour. 
It is well known that the raven's wings were clipped, preventing them from flying away. But he has changed that rule over the last few years, and you may now see ravens flying free around the battlements and over the river. But it's okay. They keep close to home, and they are very have very bold personalities. I will say, hold on to your hats, because they will come close and play with visitors out of curiosity. But it's best to keep interaction at a minimum, as with all animals. Because if they feel intimidated, they might strike a warning. And now we come to the prisoner questions. Oh, I like this. Who are some of the most well-known people imprisoned in the Tower of London? I think the Tudor prisoners have to be amongst that list, particularly the Tudor queens, Catherine Howard, Lady Jane Grey, Queen Elizabeth I when she was a princess, and of course Anne Boleyn, her mother. But we also get asked about the male prisoners too, such as the Dudleys, father and his sons, Thomas Cromwell, Sir Walter Raleigh and Sir Thomas More. Get asked a lot about Mary Queen of Scots, despite she was never actually imprisoned at the Tower. I suppose with a lot of other Tudor ladies called Mary, and our fair share of queenly prisoners, people do assume that she was here. But she was actually kept firmly away from London, and despite portrayals in fiction, she never met Queen Elizabeth I in person. Mary's crime was that she had threatened Elizabeth's crown and position, and if she managed to get control of the Tower, she would be able to raise the citizens, London citizens into rebellion and gain control of the capital and overthrow Elizabeth. So it was indeed wise to keep her well away. She was actually discreetly beheaded within the walls of Fotheringay Castle. This is also why the executions of Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard and Lady Jane Grey were not carried out in public and within the Tower's grounds to control who witnessed it and to keep the peace of the realm by preventing riots. The Tudor queens were figureheads to matters of religion and power faction, so there was a risk that their executions could trigger unrest in the realm and threaten the monarch's security. The knowledge that it had been carried out would shock the public and act as a deterrent in itself. I believe that is actually the, why, the foundation as to why they are popular and to why they, we know them so well today. It's simply because they, they kind of died for a cause rather than actually doing the crime that they were accused of and I think their stories are just a large part of what makes the tower so interesting to ta today's visitors. We know Anne Boleyn's lodgings at the Tower of London were in the same place she was held the night before her coronation. What was the average cell like, say for Mark Smeaton or George Boleyn? It is a common question I get asked and that is where were the prisoners held and the answer is not really a simple one. There was no like one cell or building that held the prisoners, where a prisoner was kept reflected their status and their crime. As with Anne Boleyn, she was brought to the tower as a queen, even though she was under arrest, and that is why she stayed in the royal apartments. As for Lady Jane Grey, for example, she was moved from those royal apartments to the lieutenant's lodging, which is next to what is known today as the Queen's House, that lovely black and white Tudor house that we see simply because she was no longer permitted to use them and required watching over. As for prisoners like Sir Thomas More, at first he was imprisoned quite comfortably in the bell tower, it is said, but over time his luxuries were taken away, like his books and um, the communication with his family, eventually even with the warm clothing. I think he was eventually left with just the clothes on his back in a bare cell. The point was not cruelty, but to try and break his spirit into submitting to King Henry VIII. Other times, prisoners like Sir Walter Raleigh were kept in comfortable lodgings and permitted to use the gardens and have servants and family with him. 
At times it is hard to locate where individuals were kept, as records were either not kept or they were destroyed through the processes of time. There has been a few fires at the Tower of London on occasion. I think George Boleyn and Mark Smeaton fall into that category. However, we do have an etching of a Boleyn, or Boleyn, <laughs> spelt B-O-U-L-L-E-I-N, that's found in the Martin Tower, and tradition has it that it is linked with George Boleyn, and that was where he was imprisoned. However, there is nothing definite that I know of to prove he certainly was there. And there's another falcon badge, um, an uncrowned falcon badge in the Beecham Tower, so it is possible, it is suggested, that one of the men accused of Anne Boleyn was also imprisoned in the Beecham Tower. But often I've tried diving into the records, and often it just says they were simply taken to the tower or were put in the tower, so there's uh, sometimes there's actually no sort of... Um, definition of where they were actually kept once in the tower and that's a bit of a problem when you're researching them. So keeping with the subject of Sir Thomas More, that's what the next question is about. So that is Sir Thomas More's cell at the Tower of London is not available for the average person to visit. Why is that? Well, yeah, that's true. Um, it's not um, accessible to everyone. So I shall just explain. Sir Thomas More was kept in the basement of the belt, and the simple reason is that the only access is through the Queen's house, that lovely black and white house that I, I mentioned, and today it is the private home of the Constable Tower, Constable of the Tower. Um, there's always been a constable there since its very beginnings. Um, it, they were, eventually, were um, once lodged in the White Tower. So yeah, it's a private home today, but I have visited the cell twice as part of training and the cell itself is quite small, um, obviously a bit dusty as, as the tower tends to be. And I believe it's a matter of preservation, you know, we want to keep it nice, but also I think it's, it's private. But there are no decorations down there, save um, a small statuette of Sir Thomas. The tower does recognise that he is a saint and although he has no individual grave, it is believed that his remains, um, at least the body anyway, because we know that his head was lodged on, on London Bridge after his execution, it's believed that his remains are one of the 1,500 skeletal remains that were found in the churchyard and flooring of the Chapel Royal of St Peter Advincula. And they were placed in two large chests that were placed within the walls of the crypt of that chapel. Um, there's two memorial tablets there that lists as many names as possible um, who they think is in those boxes. And I think it does include the lovers of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, the supposed lovers in there as well. Um, but they're all just jumbled up in these boxes. Um, but the crypt is private as well. Um, but those wishing to worship um, can be permitted with advanced request to the Padre um, to go to the crypt and even the cell at times. Um, that can all be done through Historic Royal Palace's website, so you can get in contact uh, through there if you wish to visit and arrange. The next question is, who was executed on Tower Green and who was executed within the Tower Walls? What type of people? And um, obviously want some examples. Um, most of the prisoners were executed in public on Tower Hill, close to where the modern-day underground station is, the um, Tower Hill underground station. And I think I've got my figures right, but it's somewhere like, in all, I think 22 people were executed within the Tower Walls throughout the whole history, and I think 11 of them were on Tower Green. Um, and that is the name we give to a strip of grass in the inner west side of the tower in what we call the inner ward, um, beyond the second wall of defence. 
in the Tudor times, it was actually known as East Smithfield Green, as this was its original name before the tower walls enclosed it within its boundaries under King Henry III and Edward I in the 13th century around that time. We'd have a modern-day memorial upon the green today that lists the names of those who died somewhere on Tower Green. Um, there was no permanent scaffold up there, and I think it changed with different prisoners. Um, I think we've managed to enclose Anne Boleyn's location as what was known as in front of the House of Ordnance, which is where the big Waterloo block or the, or the crown jewels are today, um, which is a little bit to the right of Tower Green, but that was known as East Smithfield Green as well. So that's probably what clears up a little bit of confusion. And that memorial place, that spot, was actually first dedicated on the orders of Queen Victoria in 1866, who had visited the tower and was saddened, apparently, that those who died there were not remembered in any way. You know, she recognised their historic importance. Um, but this was another 10 years before the restoration of the Chapel Royal of St Peter Advincula, where the remains of the Tudor victims were found and the memorial tires laid on, on their grave. And in the 20th century, the tower did continue executions, but those were by firing squad for spies and military desertions and cowardice during the World Wars. Um, they tended to take place near the Martin Tower, which is in the very northwest corner of the tower um, along there and there were some that were on tower green as well i think the last execution was actually 1941 of joseph jacob's spy a german spy had been found guilty and yeah he was executed in the tower walls and was the last prisoner so 1941 was not actually that long ago um so yeah so we come to the next question a uh, couple of questions and they seem to be focused on the actual physical buildings and features of the tower so I'll try answer them as best I can. The Tower of London used to have a moat in it or around it. Can you explain to everyone the significance of having a moat when and why was the moat drained? Uh, moats were a huge noticeable feature of any castle and were there as a defence. I imagine they are hard to cross being deep and when burdened with armour trying to cross it, you know, I don't think you could really freely move your limbs to swim, so I think it would overcome you. Also, um, unpleasant as well as moats often were the cesspits of the castle and um, obviously to the surrounding towns and cities as well. I can imagine it would have been an awful smell alone of any moat, really, given that purpose. Um, the White Tower had a moat when it first stood alone in the beginning, but under King Henry III, who I've mentioned quite a bit, um, he did expand the site and push the moat further back out with it as he expanded the walls. And the first successful moat was dug around the inner curtain wall in the 1220s and was successfully flooded, so I think they had tried to dig it before and um, were not successful in actually um, flooding it. As I mentioned, I think it quickly became a, a moat of horror as it filled with rubbish and human waste, but I believe the idea was that the tide of the River Thames would effectively flush out all the waste and wash away, but I do not think it really lived, to, lived up to its intended purpose. It probably did contribute to outbreaks of disease, but it wasn't until 1843 that it was actually drained and a dry moat was created. Um, this was on the orders of the Duke of Wellington, the Constable of the Tower at that time, as he recognised the health hazards it, it presented. 
There is an interesting story I have come across about the moat. Um, I've looked it up in a, I saw it in a documentary. It is the only time that I've actually seen this story, so I'm not quite sure which is true and which is not. Um, but it goes that it involves the stealing of the king's gold in the 1530s, and the king's gold was a reference to the gold um, to supply the royal mint that was at the tower. So the supplies were shipped up the River Thames to restock the royal mint, and these supplies, these this gold, belonged to the king. And the story goes that um, two men and a woman ended up in a bizarre love triangle trying to escape punishment for stealing the king's gold. Um, and if memory serves correct, one man got away, but the woman and the other man were hung by chains around their wrists from the outer walls of the tower at low tide. So when the tide came in, they slowly drowned in the moat and were left there as a warning to others. Very gruesome. Um, but I can't remember the details very well, but I've only heard the story once, like I said. So there might be some cross wires, as it sounds similar to other prisoner stories, like that of our Bella Stewart, who tried to escape and join up with the man that she had been banned from marrying, hence why she'd been locked into the tower. Um, so yeah, that's one sort of gruesome, interesting little story that I know about the moat. <laughs> The next question is, how many buildings are within the tower walls and what were their purpose or are their purpose? And that is a very good question. But I think off the top of my head, there's over 40 different buildings at the tower today. Um, but there's a great many number that have been and gone. I think the most famously known ones is the royal apartments um, that Queen Anne Boleyn was um, imprisoned in on the south side of the White Tower. Um, and another one is what was known as the Grand Storehouse. Um, it burnt down in 1841, uh, quite a big casualty to the tower. Fortunately, there was no human casualties that we know of um, from that fire. And they rebuilt what was known as the Waterloo Block or the Crown Jewels Exhibition, the Jewel House. Um, that is today on it. So, yes, yeah, some buildings have come and gone and others have been replaced. Um, but it is hard to obtain a, an official number throughout its history, and their purposes are so varied. Um, and many acted as prison cells, as I mentioned earlier, that there was no one tower that held all the prisoners. They were kept in different places around the tower, um, usually in the walls, the one, the towers, as we call it, the towers within the walls. Um, but yeah, they acted as prison cells, offices, residences, um, places of worship, and there was an armory and there was storage there as well. And even production centres uh, like the Royal Mint, which I've also mentioned. Um, but today the buildings uh, remain and they serve the community. Um, so not all of them you can visit, but we try and keep as many open to the public to explore as possible. And they act as ex exhibitions um, for visitor attractions. Um, and we try and sort of retell their stories as well of why they were there. So when you visit, you get to learn what that tower's purpose was. Usually defence, because that's what they were built for. Um, sort of going into a bit of detail about the towers around in the in the defence walls. Um, there's around 21 and they're both in ruin and as accessible buildings. Um, but most have exhibitions today or admin areas for the tower, but were originally built for defence. So its first purposes was to house the soldiers. And, you know, there's still arrow slits, there's still physical remains of what their purpose were and they remain visible, particularly in the outer walls that you can see. 
and I think I like that the fact that some of them have been rebuilt. So ones like the Martin Tower, you can see that it's part brick and it's part stone, it's like ancient stone. And I like seeing the two come together. <laughs> and I think most of the towers are actually labelled because um, most of them were rebuilt at some point because they did fall into ruins. So you might see um, ones like uh, the Landform Tower that existed in the 13th century, but it was actually rebuilt sometime during the 1700s because it had fallen into ruin. And if you really look closely, you can actually see, if you've got a good eye, you can actually see the break of where they've had to rebuild it, you know, the differences in colour and stone. But I think it really takes someone who's looked at them a long time, like me, to actually see it as well. But ones like the Bloody Tower, they've um, always stood, they've always um, stood up, and they will simply say the date that they were built, like, I don't know, 1280. I'm not sure that was the date that the Bloody Tower was built, but that's just an example. But I really, what I find really interesting are the names of the towers. Um, and they usually come from famous events or persons connected to the tower. And actually, you'd be surprised that most have had several names in the past and have usually originated from traditions as opposed to facts. So there's no sort of record to say, yes, we named this tower definitely because um, of this person or this event. Um, they're just sort of built up on traditions and then... Like, like with the Bloody Tower, um, at first it was known as Gatehouse Tower because that is where it just lies beyond what is known as Traitor's Gate or Watergate. And that is where the King's Barge used to come up underneath the archway of the Bloody Tower to berth next door to the White Tower where the moat used to be. So it was a gatehouse. So I imagine originally someone would have been in there to control the access into the tower, perhaps the constable of the tower, but someone who, who could um, control the access. Um, certainly around um, Queen Elizabeth I's time in the late 16th century, it was known as Garden Tower because there was a garden outside of it and it's very famous for Sir Walter Raleigh having been imprisoned there and he used to do scientific experiments in that garden um, because he was allowed to. Um, but I think sort of after Sir Walter Raleigh was beheaded in 1613, um, sort of after that, it began to be a traditional place of where the two princes were lost in the tower, that they that was their last lodging. And um, even though we don't know for sure what happened to them or whether they were murdered and by what method, it became known as Bloody Tower um, from there. But I think generally today, in regards to the princes, that they were actually um, imprisoned in those old royal apartments, which was just a little bit further along um, to the south of the White Tower. So that's just a prime example of how the names have changed due to the purpose and traditions um, to give them names as well. So, yeah, that's... Uh, an interesting little fact there. So now we're coming to the uh, end with the last couple of questions and they're really interesting. I like these questions. Um, I do get asked them sometimes when I'm at work and the first one is what is the one thing that people may be surprised to learn about working at the Tower of London and I've tried to give this some thought because I don't think there's anything that Ah, that surprises people about working there. But I think they are impressed, shall we say, by the wealth of knowledge that is within the team. And it could be we have 
people who know multiple languages to those of us who really know the royal history in its depths and um, to be surprised that some people have worked there for so long. Um, I think one of my colleagues is actually, um, he's, he's unfortunately passed away now, but I did know him. Um, he had worked there for 35 years, around 35 years. So people are surprised at how many people have actually, how long they've worked at the tower for. And, um, and I think when you're new as well, you're, you're welcomed into the team and that is one thing that always comes up um, that the whole community not just the warden team but extends to our admin team uh, the yeoman warders uh, everyone at the tower they're so welcoming and you can ask any question about what it's like to work there what it's like to carry out your role and I think that really impresses them and eases them into the job in particular so I don't think there's any surprises but there are things that I probably didn't expect to the extent shall we say you know that it is really welcoming because I think sometimes um yeah the tower has a reputation of being quite a gloomy place but it really isn't it's buzzing with life <laughs> in a modern day world as I mentioned earlier of course and I have to say as well when I meet people um, I try and break the ice of course and I do tell them that yeah I got married there it is something that I'm very very proud of and it is something that always lights up the eyes and um, is a topic to start the conversation off when you're meeting someone new and they just simply didn't realise that you could do that there as well. So that's something, shall we say, a personal surprise when they meet me. They, didn't re they don't realise that you can actually get married there. They think you have to be um, really, really way up in the social levels. But not really. The, the chapel is there for the community and the staff are part of the community as well. So, yeah. Um, the next question... Last one is, if you could travel back in time, where and when would you choose? But I think earlier on I made it quite clear that it's the Tudor times. That is my speciality. I do have a little bit of a reputation of being the Tudor expert. And I've mentioned that Anne Boleyn is my favourite queen of Henry VIII's six wives. Um, she's a very, very fascinating figure. Um, I love he hearing people's opinions on her. Um, or it's very different ones as well um, and sometimes I'm a bit sad because it's like there's so many different opinions on Anne Boleyn for example that it's hard to actually get to know what the truth actually is because everyone presents um, their own opinion very strongly and they've got evidence to back it up and I think it's a bit of a shame that we can't make her into just one person and all agree she seems to be lots of different people but that is also what fascinates me about her so I think for me I would like to go back in time and actually get to meet the characters the people see what they look like see how they spoke the way they're dressed you know just just having a, a human conversation with them um, I think I work in the armory in the White Tower and we have the armours of Henry VIII there and these were bespoke armours, they were made to measure and I've often just looked at them sometimes, caught a glance at them for a while and 
this is the guy, this is Henry VIII standing right in front of me, even though his physical body's not there, this is something that's actually left of his physical body. And you can see just how skilled the armourers were in the contours of his body. And it really does, for me, make it human. Make him a human person. He's not just living in my mind. He's not living in um, memory or a storybook or a school book. He's, he's right there in front of me. Even though, of course, his physical body is not there. This is something that was built for his physical body. And it's like a mannequin, perfect mannequin that is, that is standing there. And it just makes me really realise that these people were human. And yes, I would love to go back to their time. I would love to dress the way they do, um, to hear them speak, because even old English is changed. Um, modern English is, is different than what they spoke to back then, as far as I'm, I'm aware. You know, and just see how they lived. Definitely, I think Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, um, even Catherine of Aragon, I think I would love to have just had a conversation, perhaps been a lady in waiting to one of the queens and just seen their everyday life. It's a very, very fascinating time. And I would love to go back if I could. <laughs> and now I've reached the end of the questions. And I think I'd like to take the opportunity once more to thank Rebecca for giving me this opportunity of recording this podcast it certainly is an unusual way of talking about history that I've not really done and in my career as well it is a first for me but I have to say I have thoroughly enjoyed creating this and I would love to appear again and that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on the next episode in about two weeks I speak with author and historian Nicola Tallis about Margaret Beaufort if you don't want to miss that episode or any future episodes, be sure to subscribe to my podcast anywhere podcasts are available. Apple, Stitcher, Podbean, just a few examples. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening. But I'd also like to thank the warding team at the Tower of London, and I think we all do a wonderful job and add something unique to the role. And a few of you do know that I was doing this podcast and are looking forward to hearing it. Um, so thank you for your friendship and support. Um, but I'd also like to particularly thank Jenny, my team leader at the Tower, who has been behind me and encouraged me every step of the way of um, my project um, and other projects that I've done as well. So thank you very much. Um, but last but not least, my family. Um, so um, they'll probably never listen to this, but my little ones for letting mummy have five minutes um, and my husband, Nick, who's always there to support me too. And without his expertise tonight in software, this podcast would not have happened when technology has otherwise failed us in recording live. He really has saved the day. And also a special mention to my parents and my three sisters. Um, 
Just thanks for letting me recite The Fate of the Wives multiple times for a number of years. Um, I think it paid off in the end. So, okay, lastly, goodbye everyone who has listened to my first podcast ever and hopefully stayed to the end and I really hope you've enjoyed it. Um, So thank you and take care. Bye-bye.